Two leading trust fundraisers now share their expertise with us. The first is Anthony Clay, a certified fellow of the Institute of Fundraising. Anthony has worked as a consultant to help a wide range of organisations to get support from trusts. By contrast, Mark Davies manages the trust fundraising team at just one organisation, Oxfam GB. I began by asking Anthony what, in particular, a trust fundraiser brings to an organisation. First of all, understanding of the need for strategic planning in fundraising. A determination to persuade their employing charity to develop the correct strategies to determine what work they want to do, to look for projects that are relevant to their whole programme of work and definitely not projects that are just there to satisfy some potential trust fundraiser. So there's the whole strategic side, the brainstorming of bringing together people to understand what the case for support of that charity is. Then there's the understanding of research, how to use the websites, CD-ROMs, the books, the other published material, internal knowledge within the charity into that process of strategy. That becomes the second part, I believe, case first, then the research, and then developing the process, the action plan that presents that case to those sources of support, in this case, trust fundraisers. So it's a, a combination of understanding the case and writing the case, understanding the research and carrying the research out, and developing the strategy that presents that case to those trusts. So, three key roles, planning, research and making the application. Beginning with planning, Anthony emphasises the importance of having a clear vision for your project. I don't think it should be a matter of looking at the trusts that could be interested and then trying to find a project that matches their interest. First of all, most trusts, in my experience, are say that they're looking for new things to do. They're not particularly satisfied with the grant aiding that they've done over the years. They want to change and move with the times and indeed be most effective. So they may not themselves know quite how to define what it is that they're looking for and they don't want to exclude the one project that really gives them immense satisfaction simply by being too precise in what it is that they fund. So if you work from the process of saying what are they interested in, how can we adapt what we do to meet that interest, I think that's the wrong way round. A better way, I think, is to say what does our organisation do? What are the key projects? What are our main priorities now? What are the sort of trusts that might be interested in those priorities? How can we present those priorities to those trusts? Balancing an organisation's autonomy with its dependence on a funder is important here. Yes, it's a, it's a constant issue. I mean, it's one of the great running themes in trust fundraising. And we have some notable examples of organisations that have gone down a particular route so that maybe as much as 80% of what they do reflects all the interests of their funders rather than their original objectives. And it's very important that that doesn't happen uh, to a charity. After all, it is vital that fundraising should not wag the tail of the organisational dog, so to speak. So the essential process is that the charity itself should have its own proper business plan, forward plan, strategic plan, whatever it calls it, that recognises where it wishes to go rather than where the funds are going to come from. Then with that agreed strategy, with a full understanding of it, 
then one can start looking for trusts that one believes might well come to be interested in supporting that cause. It's so important that people understand that it isn't a matter of firing off applications to trusts that seem to fit some sort of criterion. It's much more complicated than that. I'm a great believer in brainstorming, bringing in people from the service-providing side of the charity and other people, especially involving the chief executive, to demonstrate to them the opportunities that there are out there for trust fundraising. Not saying we have to adapt what we do in order to meet what trust fundraisers are looking to fund, but saying how can we present the projects that are in our list of priorities, and it's vitally important that charities should know exactly what they want to do, this kind of planning clearly involves a lot of teamwork. But as Oxfam's Mark Davies points out, trust fundraisers need to be comfortable working independently as well as interpreting their organisation's work to external funders. Yeah, teamwork is, is important. I think we all, we all have different skills. Um, I think once it's... It does need ownership, though. It does need somebody to, to, to give a direction. And essentially, I, I think what we... Again, like you say, I'm, I'm talking from the perspective of a big charity uh, with several different trust fundraisers, and we would tend to match the application probably to the, to, the, to, the, um, to the aptitude of that particular fundraiser in the first place, and therefore that element of teamwork doesn't necessarily come through so strongly. Um, where, it's, where, it's, where it's undoubtedly useful is that there's, um, there's one person in the team who, who has undoubted writing skills and grammatical skills. And, um, you know, so they will always um, look over those, uh, the, the, the applications that the others have made because they may, they may have great skills in, in sourcing the information, in having a hunch about what's going to appeal to the, to the particular trustees that they're writing it to. But that, that's not sufficient if it's not actually clearly stated on paper. So, you know, that's, that's one element of, um, of teamwork. Take an example of, uh, of a trust approaching, approaching us with a, a certain sum of money to give for work in a particular country, then you know, the obvious steps would be to contact the field staff in, in that country. Um, you know, let's just take Tanzania for the sake of example. Um, we would alert them to, to this offer, and uh, essentially what, what, what we're doing much more often than not, is is using this money to enable new work to happen. I mean, Oxfam is a is a big organisation and it has its own sort of schedules and plans and certain projects that are underway. But uh, additionality to that, enabling new work to, to to happen, is is both what the project staff will want and uh, what the trustees usually will want as well. So you've got an instant match there, and that that sort of just makes me brings me to the point, really, of, of what a trust fundraiser is, to my mind, and that's a, um, a linking person. Well, I, I use this expression, a, a, a babel fish um, from the um, Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide. You know, you, you are a translator. You're, you're acting as the uh, interpreter between the, what's the work that's happening in the field and the, um, the interests of the trust, and if you can make those match, you're actually doing a, a huge service to both parties. Being a babel fish requires confidence in handling information. Anthony Clay now talks about the way information technology has changed the second fundraising role he mentioned at the beginning of the interview, research. It makes it much faster and easier to sift data. 
I think the real change came back in the 70s when the Charities Aid Foundation for the first time published the Directory of Grant-Making Trusts, a slim little volume it was in those days, and very interesting reading it is now. But that publication was divided into sections, environmental, human welfare, arts, whatever it was. So for the first time way back in the 70s, we were able to start sifting through trusts to find out who was going to be most likely to be interested in our particular cause. Electronics have simply speeded up that process, enables us to sift much larger amount of data. The problem is it also speeds up and makes it easier for an exclusion criterion to apply that might indeed take out the one trust that is most likely to give to you. So there is nothing like supplementing your electronic research or use of books with your own knowledge of the marketplace, knowledge of which trusts have given in the past, and especially of the knowledge of who knows your organisation. So an integral part of the whole research process must be to get your trustees, other members of staff, chief executive, the really key people in the organisation to think about trust fundraising, think about the people that they know, think about the people that they've met in the past, think about all those people that are involved with trusts, especially members of the legal profession. However well-researched a project... Trusts and the organisations they fund can differ about precisely what costs should be included in an application. I think it's probably less of a problem than it used to be in the sense that I think trusts nowadays, particularly the larger ones, and some of them are extremely well managed with highly experienced administrators, often much more experienced than the trust fundraisers, in fact, those organisations I think do recognise that the charity must be funded must have its basic core funding, its administration costs and so on and so forth. Uh, Otherwise it won't exist or it will just exist doing various projects in a rather uncoordinated way. And I think there's a real professional understanding of that problem. I suppose the ideal solution is that every project that comes forward for trust fundraising should have built into it an administrative overhead that contributes more than just the cost of the administration of that project, but also makes a contribution to the charity overhead. There are some trusts that will look at that askance and say, no, we only fund special uh, projects. We will not fund the central overhead. But in my experience, the larger trusts, those that really understand the ways of the world uh, better than the others, uh, do recognise that need. I have one client that has something like 28 projects funded by trusts and I think probably about 12% of all of those project costs are in fact central administration costs and that enables the trust fundraising programme to make quite a distinct contribution towards the overall running costs, something which the trust funders are aware of and accept and indeed in one particular case encourage. Mark Davies' perspective on costs working within a large charity, is slightly different. From the advantage of a big organisation, we can be relatively confident that we will get a a significant amount of core funding from the general database, from the £2 a month givers, that that, that kind of, you know, of which we have, you know, half a million or so. That that, that kind of income uh, gives the organisation the security and the um, stability to, to do more uh, adventurous sort of work itself and we're not doing a great deal of uh, of general funds fundraising from trusts to be honest we don't actually there's, there's no great pressure there's no great demand it doesn't fit within the strategy what we're being asked to do is to is to fund this new work so from that vantage point 
I haven't answered your question particularly cleverly from a small organisation's point of view. I think it's a question of getting to know them better. I mean, I think you're already, you've already got across one hurdle by the fact that you're talking to a trustee or even writing to one because they are, you know, they're in the, the charity world as such and they should, if anybody's going to appreciate the fact that, um, that things don't just happen without you know, without an office, without a phone, uh, without putting the stamp on the envelope that you sent to them, you know, that, that there should be a, uh, an understanding there anyway. It doesn't say that there always will be, but uh, I think you're, you're on slightly safer ground with trust for that reason than perhaps you would be with individuals. As you may recall, the third trust fundraising role mentioned by Anthony Clay was converting the planning, research and costing into an application. Anthony now shares his experience of a successful application where the trust itself played a key role in strengthening the project. I'd like to take as an example an environmental charity, quite a small, locally-based environmental charity, that had a very big idea. A big idea that's going to cost up to £20 million for an organisation with an annual income from fundraising of less than £2 million. Big idea is certainly the word. They needed a major trust to provide a very major grant and early on in the process the basic project is to acquire land and manage it in a particular way. So they needed some money up front before they'd actually bought any land. They knew exactly what they wanted to do. They had a very clear idea for that. We were very careful to write their case for support for this project in a full understanding of what one particular grant-making trust we felt was looking for at this time, a trust that had said that it was looking for environmental projects and found it difficult to find environmental projects of a certain quality. That idea was put together in a brief document which was then presented to the administrator of that grant-making trust who was persuaded without a lot of difficulty to make a site visit. If an administrator of a grant-making trust makes a site visit I would say you can, as a rule of thumb, you can say you will probably get something. The question is how much. That site visit raised a number of very important questions, some of which were quite challenging. A very intelligent, very experienced trust administrator at work here. That resulted in a change, not to the concept of the plan, but the way in which the case was presented. There was also, in this particular example, a very strong concern about the benefit to local people of the project and did the local people realise this benefit? Because if you create a nature reserve next to a perhaps a rather unattractive housing estate, that will enhance the value of those houses. And the trust administrator pointed out that, that, that this ought to be brought into the equation. So local people must be more involved and also involved in a way that reflects their understanding that their house values were increasing. The first grant that came in from that request was about 10% of what we were hoping for. But the important thing, and really illustrates the point, was that it came with a letter that said the trustees were still concerned about one particular issue, and that was the issue of involvement of the local people. Uh, That was addressed. Nine months later, another application was put in, uh, another visit, in fact, by the administrator, and that resulted in a a grant of £330,000. Mark Davies confirms the effectiveness of a site visit, but this time by the fundraiser rather than the trust administrator. There was uh, recently quite a large application where 
I was finding difficulty actually understanding what was happening on a daily basis. It, it's, it's, we, we, we often get a lot of good information about the background, uh, the rationale, uh, the objectives, but the, the how, the, the, the sort of how it's done on a daily basis is often very difficult to, to perceive from this sort of distance. So uh, we decided that I would go out there, I would actually spend a week with the, um, with the, the field office team in, in Lutzlam work in, uh, in India. And, um, you know, I came, came away thoroughly enlightened. So, so that enabled me to, to actually put in some bit of human interest as well, which, uh, and I don't think, I think that should not be forgotten. Um, there's, a, there's an assumption very often that, that trust fundraising is very dull and boring and uh, very formulaic. Uh, that wouldn't be necessarily uh, the case. I mean, that might be the case in some, some instances, but uh, one always has to remember that, that this is not, although that you're writing to human beings and they will, should be. Interested in human stories, and, and we always try to enliven them a little bit with uh, by getting it down to that sort of level of um, of, of how you know how an individual will be benef- will benefit from uh, the particular work in question. And yeah, I, I mean it worked. I think it was you know even I thought it was you know, this is a jolly good read. You know, and and it doesn't it's not often that you you think that. And other colleagues of mine, I mean, thought that it's not just me being vain. Uh, you know, other colleagues wanted to read this because it was very interesting to see what people were doing um, and how what effect was being had. It's um, you don't often get that with uh, with a lot of trust applications, I guess. So the human factor is essential. A point amplified by Anthony Clay. I think the biggest misunderstanding about trust fundraising is that what is involved is a desk, a word processor, and a computer program that will run the CD-ROM or whatever. So it's just a desk job, really. And indeed, there are people who are making very successful applications in that way, never speaking to administrators. I think that's the wrong approach. I've spent a lot of my life trying to work out what makes a good fundraiser. I don't think it necessarily requires huge intellect. I don't think it requires necessarily remarkable enthusiasm for one particular project. I think it's to do with interpersonal skills, not smarming, but to have a certain amount of charm and a certain amount of refreshing enthusiasm. Uh, and very nice illustration I would like to give of this is somebody I know who I think is one of the best trust fundraisers around who quite frequently sends friendly little postcards when they're on holiday to trust administrators. Now, I'm sure trust administrators will not thank me for suggesting that they should have floods of people's holiday postcards, but it shows the sort of attitude. It shows a, 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 an attitude of mind that even when on holiday, you just spend a few moments to send a postcard, preferably a quite amusing postcard, to somebody who you know is probably not thinking of your project every moment of the day, but you would quite like them to be thinking of it more than they do. It's establishing that sort of relationship that really is the most critical point. Though that does not mean to say that you can get away with a lot of charm and some thoroughly badly written applications. We know from what trust uh, administrators tell us that there are very good reasons why most applications are turned down beyond the fact that they haven't got enough money to fund them all. And a key one of those is that people simply haven't read the guidelines. That is the commonest reason. They say this application does not reflect what we're looking for. And all the charm in the world will not overcome the difficulty of the final decision maker looking at an application in writing and saying they don't understand what we're looking for. 
Applying for and spending money from trusts involves questions of accountability and ethics. Anthony recommends a useful source of advice here. I particularly like to draw attention to the Code of Practice for Trust Fundraising of the Institute of Fundraising. Although that's not in a, a textbook, well, it's not, not a book anyway, uh, it is a document which I think covers some very important issues about the management of trust fundraising beyond the point at which the money is actually received. What should you do, for example, if you realise that the project is possibly not going to be completed? What do you do if you discover that some matched funding that you were relying on, which supported your trust application, is not forthcoming? Should you send the money back? Should you tell the trust? And at what stage should you tell the trust? And so on and so forth. All these points are covered in that code of practice. And they stress really quite clearly those things which are mandatory at law, the must things or the must not things, those things which we feel that are absolutely essential for anybody who is aspires to be a member of the Institute of Fundraising, the things that you definitely should do or should not do, and the things that we describe as the ought things, the things that we think probably on balance best practice says that you ought to do this or ought not to do that. And these are really clearly listed in the Code of Practice for Trust Fundraising, as indeed in other institute codes of practice for other aspects of fundraising. Sometimes, as Mark Davies points out, best practice in trust fundraising can be a question of knowing when to say no. I see the trust fundraiser's job in that instance as being either to sell the different line of the organisation to the potential donor to say, look, understand why you're saying you want to fund this particular area, but uh, that's not quite what we do. What we do is such and such because ABC uh, and try to persuade them in that way. That's perfectly acceptable and that's, you know, I think that's quite appropriate for uh, and will be appreciated ultimately by the, um, the funder themselves. Uh, and the other thing is to accept not, not just get those dollar signs in your eyes, you know, and say no. I mean, actually, uh, in my experience, you get a lot of credit for, for not snatching at money. You know, one, this is a slow process, fundraising, very often. And um, if you don't have precisely the right sort of project for the funder in question, it's often worth being honest about that and saying no and waiting for the right, the right moment. It's, it's square pegs into round holes situation. I asked Mark what kind of ethical issues trust fundraising presented in his experience. Fortunately, very few. It's, um, it's, it's something which I am thankful for very often uh, compared to the huge dilemmas that my colleagues in corporate fundraising have to engage with uh, on an almost daily basis, essentially. There's pretty much an understanding that any charitable trust which has been registered with the Charity Commission is going to be appropriate. There are exceptions to that, and we do leave it essentially to individual discretion and judgment so I won't name names but uh, there are some corporate or some company trusts which would obviously not sit very comfortably with uh, Oxfam's ideals and aims and so therefore we would we might take a decision not to to take money from that particular trust uh, just on the basis of the name and and that would be largely it it's it's the public perception really I mean one can can often as a fundraiser, I'm often, in fact, very tempted to to think that the the ends justify the means, or, or, or rather, saying no to the money is actually penalising the, the the poor people of the world that we're working for, because that money can actually be used for for good effect. But one has to balance that against the uh, counterproductive 
effect that it might have if it's, if it's a you know, particularly bad match and uh, it would just put off uh, members of the public and we'd lose support in that way. So uh, we're looking at that kind of issue quite often. While agreeing 100% on the importance of ethical behaviour, Anthony emphasises the need to balance interests in what can be a complicated area. I think I'm a little bit of a maverick here. Uh, I wouldn't say that I don't care about ethical issues. I think, obviously, they are critically important. But I think there have been very good examples of what would otherwise have been successful fundraising that was damaged simply by somebody having very, very precise and very clear ethical standards of their own, which might indeed not necessarily be applicable to that particular organisation. I'm thinking, for example, of an environmental charity uh, that wasn't in any way concerned with health or cancer, uh, accepting money from a tobacco manufacturer or a subsidiary of a tobacco manufacturer. That has happened and I believe that's acceptable. I believe it's acceptable for under certain circumstances or it may be acceptable under certain circumstances for an environmental charity to accept money from an oil company. You have to know why it's being done. You have to understand the full issues. The most important single thing is to determine what your ethical standards are, where you will accept money from. For example, if you're a cancer charity, I would think it would be totally inappropriate to accept money from a tobacco manufacturer or a trust set up even by a tobacco manufacturer or even, I think, probably from an organisation that is a wholly owned subsidiary of a tobacco manufacturer, a company, for example, that doesn't in fact manufacture tobacco. Because although one could argue that here is a tobacco manufacturer diversifying away from producing these harmful tobacco products, nevertheless it is that organisation and it would be quite inappropriate for a cancer charity that I would imagine would always be opposed to tobacco uh, to take money from that source. But for an environmental charity, I don't know. I think you could argue this till the cows come home. Uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, some people will take one view and some people will take another. But if ethics is sort of written large on your office wall to such an extent that you don't take money from trusts, where quite possibly uh, you're really being too ethical <laughs> by saying no, then the cause that you exist to serve or the people that you exist to serve may not get the money that would change possibly transform their lives. And I think it's awful if we just bow the knee to ethics without thinking of those other issues as well. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.